in our circle time before the service, I was just sharing with them that, that uh, the last time I was here was in a conference room off of a hallway over there somewhere and uh, sitting down and talking with Pastor Mike and just said, hey, what, what do you all think about the possibility of us coming and, and, uh, and sharing a facility with you guys? And, uh, and here we are. It's awesome. So uh, it's good to be here. It's, it's good to have you here. Uh, if you're visiting with us, Pastor Jamie, who's the campus pastor here, is showing up in Newport News. I hope so. If he's not, right, my phone's going to start buzzing. Who's preaching? So he's there. I'm here. Uh, we're wrapping up our series, Watch Your Mouth, and uh, have really been enjoying this series, uh, enjoying teaching it, and then and, and enjoying the conviction that comes from it, right? And so I trust that it's uh, been a conviction in your life too, which is a good thing. So all right, if you're here, you need to have, who? Any, every, did everybody get sandpaper? Anybody not get sandpaper? Everybody's got it? I've got some right here on the front row if anybody needs it, and, uh, and then I've got mine, but you're going to want that uh, during, the, during the service. We're going to be referring to this. We like little object lessons every now and again, help you remember what we talk about. So this month has been an emotional month for me because my uh, father passed away the week of Thanksgiving last year. And so if you've ever had a loved one who passes away or, or, uh, or maybe you've had a good friend who's had someone that's just in their journey of grief, and uh, you, you know that firsts are important. You know what I mean? So first Father's Day, uh, if, if, you've, if when your mother passes the first Mother's Day, and, uh, and so this October, October 15th, was my dad's first birthday without him being here, and they got married on, uh, on my dad's birthday. He's a pretty smart guy, isn't it? He's never going to forget their anniversary because they got married on his birthday. And so, so it was also my parents' first anniversary uh, without my dad being here. And so this month, I've just been thinking a lot about things I learned from my dad. He was an awesome father uh, and a great husband to my mom. And, uh, and so one of the things I remembered was that he loved to fix things himself. He was kind of a fix-it guy. And, uh, and, and he would always tell me, Fred, always take the time to get the right tool. Always take the time, right? So we would might be under the car and, and we needed like a ball ping hammer or something like that. And I'm looking around, I'm like, well, there's a really stout crescent wrench right here, you know? And I would pick it up and my dad would, would grab my arm. I can still feel him grabbing my arm today. And, and, uh, and him saying, son, always take the time to get the right tool. And, and many times we would be working on a project, whether it's working on the car or working on the house, and I would hear him say that to me. And, uh, and, and, and I still hear him say it to me now, even though he's not here, right? I was working on the house just yesterday, and there was a couple of times where I should go back and get this tool. And I mean, I can, know, I can make it work with this tool, right? And, and I, could hear, I can hear my dad say, son, take the time to get the right tool. And, and I'm sharing that with you in the sermon series because I think what would happen if we would live our lives like that with our words? What would happen in situations where maybe we're heightened emotion, maybe we're frustrated, maybe we're disappointed by someone, and there's words that are easy to come out, and the Holy Spirit whispers to us and says, oh, take the time to find the right words. There's a different word that you need to bring to this moment than the one that you want to share. Sometimes it's maybe the emotion, maybe the intent, the motivation, and the Holy Spirit says, oh, take the time, find the right one. And so tonight what we're going to be talking about is this idea of having the right tools in regards to your words with interactions with people. And the reason why you have two different kinds of sandpaper is because sometimes our words need to be super fine, 
and then sometimes they need to be extra coarse, right? I want to dispel the myth that as Christians, our words always have to be soft. It's not true, and we find some great support in the Bible from Jesus himself. We want to talk about that. But I want to dispel the myth also that I think sometimes as Christians that we operate from a place of self-righteousness, that because my words are true, that's the only standard, and I don't have to worry about the effect of my words on other people. So I think sometimes maybe you fall into the other category of a Christian, that you've earned the reputation of always having a coarseness, and you say, well, I have truth on my side. And so I want to talk tonight about sometimes our words are extra coarse, and then sometimes they need to be super fine. All right, let's do a couple of giveaways, right? We like to do some giveaways, and I know we've been doing giveaways related to the sermon series. I'm going to break from that a little bit because I was on uh, social media this week, and I can't remember if it was on Instagram or if it was on Facebook, but I saw Philip Marr spike a volleyball on social media. And, and I kid you not, the kid on the other team ducked, right? He went, and so I'm thinking to myself, oh, the coach talked to them, right? If, if you don't want to play, you probably shouldn't be on the court. But ducking is not really part of defending in volleyball. But I have to admit, if I had been on the other side of that court, I would have ducked when I saw that ball coming at me because it was coming pretty fast. So 1 Peter 3.10 has been an anchor verse for us in this series. 1 Peter 3.10. And it says, For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life. These if-then statements in the Bible are important because there's a causal relationship that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us. If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days. So right, we're saying if we want to live a longer life, than we would have otherwise, and if we want the balance of those lives to be happy and enjoyable and fulfilling, here comes the next statement. This is our responsibility. And keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. I want to suggest to you tonight as we get into our message that the definition of evil is not always what you see in a scary movie in the theater. You with me? Sometimes evil is subtle. Sometimes evil is simply not bringing to the moment what God wants you to bring. If our words are working against the will of God, can I just say, I think God would say, that's evil. And we want to do what's best for the person. And then I think here the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to remind us that, hey, we need to do it because it's what's in our best interest as well. All right, so let's start with super fine. You want to start with super fine? So not that you really have a choice, do you? All right. I just like to say that just to make you feel good. All right. First Daniel chapter 3. First Daniel chapter, actually chapter 1, verse 3. First Daniel 1. I'm going to read in verse 3. I'm going to go down to verse 9. Then the king ordered Asphenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said, and make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years. And then they would enter the royal service. Daniel 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them these Babylonian names, which many of you are familiar with. Daniel became Belteshazzar, but it's the last three that you probably find familiar later on in Daniel. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was Meshach, and Azariah was Abednego. We are familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. All right, verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself. Now, this is an important piece of information for us. So he had already decided, I'm not doing it. And the word defile is important for us because he's saying this goes against my religion. This would cause me to violate my faith in God if I were to do this thing, right? So he has truth on his side. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. Now, listen to what it says. He asked the chief of staff for permission. He asked for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Verse 9, now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. Now, now let's put it in a little bit of historical context. Daniel and his friends had been taken away into captivity. The Babylonian army has now conquered the southern kingdom. Israel was divided up throughout its history into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom called Israel, and then the southern kingdom was called Judah. Israel had already fallen. Now Judah has fallen, and Israel as a nation feels as though emotionally that they're lost. Now Judah is in captivity, the southern kingdom, and, and the people that are there are slaves. Now we read this, and it doesn't seem like that, you're right? They're given nice clothes, especially these young men. They're given food from the king's table. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves in a situation where we think, well, maybe they didn't have it so bad. I don't know about you, but can I just say, if someone were to say to me, Fred, you're going to have to be a slave, but you're going to get really nice clothes and really nice food and get to live in a really nice place. You know what I'm going to say? I would rather be free. You with me? For, slavery is tragic for anyone. And part of slavery is that your property. Part of slavery is that you don't have a say. Part of slavery is that you have to do what you're told whenever you're told, whether you want to or not. And so that's important for us to understand because this is their mindset here. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're enslaved. They're property in a foreign land. It would be just as if ISIS were to come into America conquer it, take us to the Middle East, and cause us to live there, enslaved to them. Babylon was their arch enemy, right? We understand the emotion of that. And so here we have Daniel. If anybody had a right to say, I'm not doing what you're telling me to do, right? It would be Daniel. If anybody had a right to say, you're treating me like property here, and this is wrong. And not only that, I'm a prophet from the Most High God. And if you do this to me, then he, you just better look out because God's on my side, right? He would have been justified in saying that. And you find in Daniel's life that he says things like that later on. We know that Daniel's not afraid. We know that he's not being politically correct. We know that he's not saying this because he's afraid for his life. He's a great man of faith, and he's a great man of courage, and he's a great man of wisdom. He understood the moment that he was in. And in this moment, what was required was deference. Now, the reason why these are both sandpaper is because very fine doesn't necessarily mean that you have to just do what people tell you. Even this sandpaper that's very fine is still designed to resist. It's still designed to remove something. It's still designed to, designed to alter something, but it's designed to do it more gently than the other. 
Daniel is not capitulating in this moment, but what he is doing is showing deference to the respect for the respect of the authority of the person that's in front of him. Slavery, forced cultural assimilation, and yet we find him asking for permission. He already knows he's not going to do it. He's already decided in his heart that he's not going to do it. It almost seems a little disingenuine that he would ask permission as if he's giving this person the choice. But that's sometimes what deference looks like. He's looking for a result. He's not just trying to win the fight. All right, let's look at another one. I like this one. This comes out of Acts. Just in case you're thinking, I know it's in the old, but is it in the new? And the answer is yes. And this one's even better. I like this church because it's got the biggest clock I've ever seen on the back wall. I'm going to be turning 49 in a few months, and I'm like, I can read that clock. That's great. I could be turning 99 in a couple of months, and I'd be able to see that clock, right? Yeah. Which is good for you, actually. You have a vested interest for the person that's preaching to be able to see the clock. Acts 26. Acts 26. This is, this is an awesome story. The, the Bible is so rich. It's just so rich. So the Bible is a book of history, which means that we believe in the historicity of Scripture. We believe the Bible is historically accurate. But even the history in the Bible was given to us by God to teach us how to live. And so the historical parts of Scripture, we've, we believe, are just as doctrine-giving as, as what theologians would call didactic portions, which are the ones that are clearly do and don't. Do this and don't do that. But we believe when you, when you delve into the history of the Bible, there's rich things that we can learn about life, and we find that here in Acts 26. So Acts 26, I'm going to read 2 through 3. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know that you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently, right? Super fine, right? He's complimentary, he's, he's deferring, he's, he's, he's acknowledging his authority, he, he calls him by his proper title. So, so we see Paul here saying all the, all the right things. Now, Agrippa is not the only person that's in the audience. There's the local governor called Festus, and then they pick up in verse 24. Let's hear what he has to say about Festus. And then I want to talk to you about these two men. Verse 24. Suddenly Festus shouted, right? So we skipped all the, the presentation there that Paul gave of the gospel in his situation. And, and, and Festus shouts, Paul, you're insane. Too much study has made you crazy. But Paul replied, oh, I am not insane. Listen to what he calls him. Most excellent Festus. What I am saying is the sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. The things that he says to these two men, I find shocking when you really realize who these two men are. Now, this is King Herod Agrippa II, and he's the seventh Agrippa in the line of the Herodian 
the Herodian line, right? His, his, the first one was Herod the Great, which was the king that was on the throne at the time of Jesus' birth. He's the one that was responsible for killing all the children because he was trying to put out the, the light of this coming Messiah who he thought was here to take his earthly throne. And, and every Herod that came after him did terrible, terrible, terrible things. This, this king here, Agrippa, he had a sister, and she's in the text. She's present that day. Her name is Bernice, and it's, it's common understanding amongst historians that Herod Agrippa II was having an incestuous sexual relationship with his sister, right? And everybody said, ooh, right? We're like, what, what? Are you, are you kidding me? This is the man that Paul's standing in front of, and this sister is there with him, sitting next to him, right? So I'm just saying, if there was Facebook 2,000 years ago, some of you would have been on there. Did you hear what Paul did? Or should I say what he didn't do? Yeah, I heard from my sister's brother's cousin's aunt's uncle who had a friend who was there, that Bernice was in the room, Herod's sexual partner, who is his sister, and Paul called him king and complimented him and did not one time call him out for his sin. Who is this Paul? I don't care how many churches he's planted. I don't care how many letters he's written. I'm telling you, he is not a man of God because he did not call him out in the moment, right? Some of you would have written that post on your Facebook page if that had been modern-day history. Every situation and every circumstance requires us to follow the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And as long as the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit does not cause us to violate Scripture, we've got to be willing to sometimes do what's not the most popular course of action. How about Festus? Festus is the local governor, and he was appointed by Nero. Now, many of us recognize the name of Nero. He was an emperor that was responsible for many of the slaughter of Christians in his day. But he didn't just slaughter them. He enjoyed in seeing them suffer. And it's commonly believed that he would take Christians, that they would capture, that he would have them dipped in oil, and that he would burn them alive in his courtyard at night to provide evening lighting. That's a despicable man. Facebook post, number two. I heard Festus was there. Paul had a chance. Call him out for the terrible things he's doing to the, his, brother, his brothers and sisters of Christ in Rome, but yet he remained silent. He's a politician. He only tells people what they want to hear. Who, how can we follow this man in following Christ? When we read these stories, I think sometimes we just push past the history because we want to maybe get to something that's a little bit more familiar. But if God put it in here, it's because he's trying to teach us something. And I think one of the things that he's trying to teach us through the history that he inspired Luke to give us in the book of Acts is this understand that there are times when God wants to use us to not just be a sledgehammer that breaks down a wall, although we're going to get to that when we get to extra course. Sometimes he calls us to be super fine. Let me give you six questions. Six questions, and then I want to get to extra course. 
six questions that you should ask yourself. What is God's purpose for this moment? Let me share this thought with you. Part of knowing the right, the right coarseness for our words is dependent upon our discerning the purpose of the moment. Discernment is a fruit of spiritual maturity, and spiritual maturity is a result of a pathway-driven life. It's one of the things that we teach here at City Life, the pathways, which many people call spiritual disciplines, should define who you are. We have 12 of them that we talk about as a church, and you can find that stuff on our website. It's another sermon for another time. Probably we'll get into it in this next series that we're going to do why. Uh, it's a series that follows this one. We talk about the things that we do as a church and some of the things that, that we believe. But you've got to do your part in all the, the traditional spiritual disciplines. Again, we call them pathways because they take you somewhere in order for to grow and mature. And as you grow and mature, there's discernment that comes and it helps you know when the Holy Spirit grabs your wrist like my father grabbed mine and said, hey, take the time to get the right word. And sometimes the right word is a word that is gentle. And sometimes the right word is a word that is soft. Sometimes the right word is a word that's complimentary, whether or not you feel like the person that you're talking to deserves it or not. We have to discern the purpose for the moment. Daniel had a purpose in his moment, and he knew that his purpose in that moment was to to create a scenario and a situation where the Holy Spirit could show his supernatural power. His purpose in that moment in the text that we read was not to win the argument or to take a stand. We see him doing that much later. We see him doing it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see him doing it with, with, when he gets thrown into the lion's den. We know that he's willing to take a stand, but in this moment, he knew that there needed to be a miracle that would be performed that would cause that nation to begin to say, who are these people of God? And so he was willing to go against popular opinion and he was willing to be super fine and to give deference to a people that didn't deserve it. The Apostle Paul understood that his life had a purpose. There was some of the Bible that had not yet been written. It was not his day to die. He knew that one day he was supposed to travel to Rome and so much of his ministry was going to happen from that place. He knew that he had a purpose that he was supposed to fulfill. God had a purpose for his life. God has a purpose for your life. And sometimes I think God's purpose gets displaced because we're too into being right. All right, number two, is my first desire to respect authority? Is my first desire to respect authority? As devoted followers of Christ, that should be the example of our lives. And unfortunately, and I'm guilty of it just like everybody else, it's not always my first desire. Whoever's in political office, whoever pulls you over and writes you the ticket when it was somebody else's fault, we can go down the list after list after list after list. The coach that didn't put your child in for the game when you thought they should or pulled him when he shouldn't have, right? They're, Christians should be setting the example for what it means to respect authority. Respect for authority has nothing to do with whether or not that respect is deserved. It has to do with the character of the person that's giving it. And Scripture cannot be more clear. And sometimes, Christians, we are the worst example. The world should be standing in line to talk to us, to ask us the question, how do you respect authority like that? And we should be able to say, let me tell you how, because of who Jesus is in me. Number three, am I more concerned for God's purpose or, or my reputation? How many times is our, is our course of action determined because we're worried about what other people are going to think of us as opposed to what God's plan is for my life? I have got to be willing to be unpopular to be obedient to my God. All right, let me read these verses, and then the last three questions all relate to this same theme. This comes out of, comes out of Psalm 5, verse 9. 
It says, my enemies cannot speak a truthful word. Their deepest desire is to destroy others. Their talk is foul, like the stench of an open grave. Like, this is strong language. It causes me to, what's going to come next? Listen what comes next. Their tongues are filled with flattery. Psalm 12, 2 through 3. Neighbors lie to each other, speaking with flattering lips and deceitful hearts. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off their flattering lips and silence their boastful tongues. Proverbs 29, 5. To flatter friends is to lay a trap for their feet. I love that one. It means if you love someone, you're, you're going to talk to them and you're going to say to them the things that maybe they need to hear that they don't want to hear. And if you don't, you're setting them up for a failure because you didn't love them enough to warn them that they were going down the wrong path. But whether or not that warning is supposed to be extra coarse or super fine, that's between you and God and we've got to get the decision right. Listen to these last three that deal with flattery. Am I flattering them because I want something from them? Anybody else done that, right? You flatter them because you want something in turn. That's not what superfine is. You tracking with me? That's different, right? That's being self-serving. Being superfine is being obedient to the Holy Spirit. Number, number five, am I flattering them because I need affirmation? Sometimes our insecurity causes us to say th nice things to people because we want them to think well of us because of our own insecurity. Am I flattering them because I need affirmation? That's not being superfine. Am I flattering them because I'm avoiding a necessary conflict? Superfine is not because you're avoiding the extra course that God wants you to bring. That's like you and me saying, God, I know you want me to be extra course right now, but I've got some experience in this, right? Who says that? Yeah, all of us do. When our heart should be that, God, what do you want me to do in this moment, and how do you want me to approach this person? And when I want to be extra coarse, and he's calling me to be super fine like Daniel and the Apostle Paul, then I'm obedient. And then maybe when I want to be super fine, but he's telling me, you got to find the courage. This is an extra coarse moment, as we're going to see in just a minute, that we've got to be willing to find the courage to do what God is asking us to do. All right, let's go on to extra coarse. Everybody got their extra coarse sandpaper? Yeah? Some of you should have gotten a couple of these. Yeah? All right. Your picture's going to, no, I'm just kidding. Matthew 15. Let's look at Matthew 15. I call these verses imposter Jesus, right? This is the Jesus that you didn't learn about on the flannel board in vacation Bible school. You, you're tracking with me? And shouldn't, right? This is for, this is for when you get older, Okay, it's, it's, it, it, this would be the equivalent of your kid being sent home from school because of the way they treated another student. And when they got home and you said, where did you learn how to talk to somebody like that? In Sunday school, in the Bible story, on Saturday night at City Life during kids' church, right? All right. Imposter Jesus. 15, verses 1 through 20. I'm not going to read all of those, but that's the text if you wanted to follow up. And then these notes will be online, too. I know we cover a lot of ground, but we put the PDF document online. So, all right, chapter 1. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonially washing before they eat. And Jesus replied, and why do you, by your tradition, violate the direct commandments of God... For instance, God says, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. It's in the Mosaic Law, so that's why he's quoting it to them. But you 
you say, it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you for I vowed to give to God and I would have, or I would have given to you in this way. You say they don't need to honor their parents. So you, you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. And, and if he had just stopped there, we'd say like, yeah, that's all right, right? I mean, he's just sharing what he feels, but now he gets into some name calling, right? You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their worship is a farce. It's a, their worship is a joke. He's, he's saying this to them, to their face, right? For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes out of your mouth that defiles you, but you were defiled. It's, it's not that what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but you were defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. And this is what I love here in verse 12, right? Then the disciples came to him and asked, do, do you realize that you have offended the Pharisees, right? They're trying to help him out a little bit. Jesus, could we talk to you just for a minute? Have you ever heard of the book of Daniel? right? And how he was gracious to people, right? He's, he's trying to help. These are people that we don't want to upset. Listen to what Jesus says. Every plant not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted, right? He's doubling down. So, so ignore them. So Jesus here by way of an example says, call people names. And when you hurt their feelings and people come to you to try to tell you you've offended someone, he's saying, well, we, we should just ignore them and their hurt feelings, Right? Imposter Jesus. So then he doubles down on the name calling. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind guide guides another, then they will both fall into the ditch. I love this text because it seems as though Jesus is not following his own teaching, doesn't it? Because right here in the text, he says, it's, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, right? Which is why it's okay to stop at Krispy Kreme on Mercury Boulevard when the hot sign is on, right? It, it's, he's saying it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm thinking, well, isn't that what you just did? It didn't, didn't you just defile yourself by the way you treated these people? You called them names. You mocked them. You made fun of them. You called them out in front of other people instead of doing it privately. It seems as though Jesus is not following his own advice. He offends. He uses words that we would say are inappropriate. And then he says that we should ignore them. If my only test is whether or not my words will offend then I will never say everything that needs saying. Let me say that again. If my only test is whether or not my words will offend, then I will never say everything that needs saying. All right, let's jump to Matthew 23. Jesus isn't done. Matthew 23, and I'm going to start reading in verse 15. Imposter Jesus. Verse 15. Now, this comes out of a sermon. You know, Jesus gave lots of sermons. The Sermon on the Mount, right, is one of the most popular ones we know about, the Beatitudes. This is one of his famous sermons, too. It's called the Eight Woes. And, and depending on your translation, if you don't have King James or maybe something that's less of a modern translation, it's not going to say woe unto you. Mine says, my New Living Translation says what sorrow awaits you. But this is, the eight, eight, this is in the Eight Woes sermon that he gives. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea 
see to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are, right? Not, not out of the theory of how to win friends, right, and influence people. Let's, let's read another one, 27 to 28. Some of you are like, this, is, is that guy reading out of my Bible? Yes, I am. It's in yours too, 27 to 28. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 33, snakes, he calls them. Sons of vipers, right? That's really bad in Jesus' day. It's very similar to something people say today, but different. You're tracking with me? All right. How will you escape the judgment of hell? These are, these are strong words. How many of you want Jesus to come and talk to you in your sin like this? How many of us want our friends to come and talk to us like this when we need? We, we like people to give us this, and we like to give this one out. Are you with me? I like to receive this one, but I like to give that one. John 8, 44. Let, let me just give you one more just in case you're not convinced. You're like, well, that's just in Matthew's gospel. No, 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 it's on all of them. 844. 844. For you are the children of your father. At this point, they're thinking, yep, of the devil. You're the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning, he has always hated the truth, and there is no truth in him. And when he lies, it is consistent with his character because he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And he's saying to them, and that's your daddy, right? This is Jesus, the portrait in your child's nursery who's holding a lamb in his lap, right? Who looks like he's Swedish, and he shouldn't be, okay? Right? This, this, this is the same guy because he understands what we're talking about. He's perfect. He knows that sometimes you've got to be extra coarse and sometimes you've got to be super fine and that, that we've got to find the right word for the moment. And it necessitates character and self-restraint and self-control and a willingness to be obedient to the Holy Spirit even when it's unpopular. All right, let me give you six questions for extra coarse. Six questions for extra course. Does my authority compel me to intervene? Does my authority compel me to intervene? Meaning that let's say that, that in your workplace you have people that report to you and people that, that, that are responsible to you for their conduct and for their productivity. As, as someone who is responsible for people, it's your responsibility to be willing to step in when somebody needs to step in. And if you don't, the other people that are there see that, right? And you begin to create a culture that the people that are in charge are afraid. And it can happen in churches too, 
when there's conflict, when there's people that are mistreating other people, there should be people that are there who are leaders, who are willing to step in. Sometimes, yes, be super fine, but sometimes it's required to be extra coarse and to be willing to walk in the authority that God has given to us to intervene in circumstances and situations. Question number two, does my relationship give me permission to intervene. This is an important one. I'd like to tell people, unless God says otherwise, right? Because that's an important clarifier to give. Unless the Holy Spirit leads you otherwise, your conversation should not be bigger than your relationship. It shouldn't be bigger than your relationship. If the conversation that you're going to have with them, now I'm not talking about now if you have a job responsible, I'm just talking about now with friends, right? We shifted gears. With friends that you have, relationships, your circles of friendships, is ask the question, can they hear this from me? Can they hear this from me? So many times, even in church, in leaders' meetings, if there's a situation that needs intervention, one of the questions I ask is, who in our room with our elders, and we say, who here knows this person the best? Because our goal is to not be right. Our goal is to help someone. And how we help them oftentimes is to send the person that they're closest to. Which leads me to part of my next question. Am I doing everything possible to set them up for success? I don't care about their success, Fred. Right? They're a jerk. (laughs) Am I willing to do everything possible to set them up for success? My goal is to not be right. My goal is to not win an argument. My goal is to love them. Jesus died on a cross for all of these people just a few weeks later. It's powerful, isn't it? When he was on the cross, he did not say, Father, forgive them, accept these people and, and work off of a list. No, 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 forgive them for they know not what they do. It's powerful, isn't it? He put everything else into context in that moment and gave us one of our greatest examples. If God's going to call us to be extra coarse, never forget our motivation has got to be because we want to help that person and we want to see them succeed. If we can't, then we should be quiet. Number four, am I operating off of a script or am I following the prompt of the Holy Spirit? We like to talk a lot about scripts here at City Life because it affects all of us. Uh, I like to use that term because we're familiar with it. If you go to the movies, we just saw Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks, awesome film. If you want to go see a new picture that's out, and uh, they're given scripts. Maybe Tom Hanks, as good as he is, they let him improvise a little bit. But for most, they're given a script, and they're told, right, you got to say the words off of this paper. I don't care what your creative insight is. This is the word that you're going to speak. Many of us in our lives, we operate off of a script. We have a parenting script when we first have kids that we get from the family that we grew up in. We have a marriage script that's operating in our lives from the marriage that we observed or did not observe when we grew up. Our life experience writes a script onto our lives, and we begin to walk that script out. As Christians, we have a responsibility to immerse ourselves in community, in God's word, so Scripture overwrites the script of my life experience. I need to begin to act and to treat people not based on how my life was shaped and formed. How my life was shaped and formed by way of my experience might help me to understand my challenges. You with me? It helps me understand it, but it can't give me permission to stay there. God's word has got to begin to take over at some point. And so if you're getting ready to reach for the extra course paper that's in your pocket, if that's the word that you're going for, you, you've got to pause and ask yourself the question, is the Holy Spirit causing me to step into this moment with coarseness, or is this just a script? Is it my default? Number five, I like this one. 
Am I venting my own frustration? Anybody here need to vent sometimes? Hey, we all need to vent. Can we just, can we agree to that? God doesn't want you to keep that emotion all stuffed inside. You've got to have people that you trust that you can vent to. Some of our venting should happen in times of prayer. We've been talking about this in the series in Newport News. A lot of psalms are called prayers of imprecation, right? I joke with people who say, I always like to start my day out with psalms. And I say, well, have you actually read the book of psalms? Because there's a lot of really depressing things in there, right? I don't want to start my day with David trying to call a curse down on people's children under the 10th generation, right? I'm like, wow, that's a great way to encourage my heart with my morning espresso, right? So I just, if you want to start your day with psalms, that's great, but just be careful the psalm that you choose. You might, you might become a little ornery. Why is that in the Bible? Because that's where we take those emotions. Th those psalms weren't his speech to the people. That was his place in a quiet moment of prayer with the Father. God says, you got to bring that stuff to me so you don't take it out there when you're not supposed to. So you've got to be willing to vent to God. you got to have people that you trust. And can I just say, on behalf of people that sometimes get the call, you got to give us some warning. If you're married, give your spouse some warning. I'm just calling to vent. Just calling to vent. Just help us out. Set us up for success, right? Because if you're a fix-it person like me, I want to fix your problem. Right? And then sometimes Vanessa says to me, I don't need you to fix anything. I just need you to listen. I'm like, well, if you could have told me that, you know, a few minutes ago, that would have helped me out a whole lot, right? But I'm ready now to listen, right? If, you, if you're going to vent, tell the person, can I, just, can I just vent? Be a friend to people and let them get that stuff out so that when it comes time to get to the person that they have to interact with, that they can be the person that God needs them to be. The last question I want to give you for extra course is, do I lack the moral authority necessary to intervene? This is the greatest reason that men are passive leaders in the home, is because they're doing things in their private life that they know they shouldn't be doing, and then it causes them to not lead strong in their house because they don't have a moral authority to do so. And you know what? They're right. And the answer to that is not to continue to be passive. The answer to that is deal with the sin that's in your life. Reach out to some men that you can trust. Call me, Pastor Jamie, some of the other leaders. We can get you connected with men's group and the resources that you need. But men, you've got to get your life on track so that you can have the moral authority that you need to have because your wife needs you to have that. Your kids need you to have that. We say all the time, being the head of the house isn't being the boss. It's about being the pace setter. It's about being the pace setter for spiritual well-being in your home. It's about having the being the one that's ultimately responsible for the condition of your home, being ultimately responsible for the countenance that's on the face of your children and on your wife because of who you are and who you are not. Oftentimes we don't lead strong because we lack the moral authority. One of the reasons we have to live well is so that we can lead strong. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. So I was in the Verizon store a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, one of our family's phones was, was a couple of years past due for an, an upgrade. And so we went to the Verizon store, and, and we in the store in Newport News, I don't know about the store here in, in Williamsburg, where the store in Newport News is terribly small, right? It's too small for the region that they serve. And so you got to try to figure out a time that you can go when it's not going to be so busy. Like, don't, don't even show up on a Saturday, right? It's like going to MacArthur Mall the day before Christmas. It's just, it's right? So, so I, 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 get, I get in there, and, and, and 
and we're there. Uh, Vanessa's with me, the whole family. We're like, we're just, we got some errands to run. And we, we show up like at 8 at night, right? And we're thinking, who's going to be at the Verizon store at 8 at night? Well, apparently half of Newport News was at the Verizon store at 8 at night. And so we said, how long is the wait going to be? And they said, it's going to be an hour. I'm like, I'm not waiting an hour, right, at 8 o'clock at night for the Verizon store. And so we said, thank you. We'll come back at another time. And so that week, I thought, I'll just go during my, during my lunch. And, and I know it's going to be busy, but I'll just, I'll take some stuff with me on my lunch. And so one of the things I took with me was my iPad. And on the iPad, I've got access through Fios to all of my all of my TV channels and things like that. And and when we last time we re-upped, they offered us all these premium channels for free. And you know how they do that to get you to sign up. And so I had HBO on my iPad, and I sit down on the, on the bench, and there were these grandparents. Let's say great grandparents sitting next to me, right? So I'm just trying to give you some context here. I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to turn 49, right? So I'm going to be 50 in a year. Can I just tell you, the older I get, the younger every age is, right? You, you with me there? So I'm going to be 50 soon, but 50 is young, right? 50 is young. So these great-grandparents are sitting sitting next to me, and, and I kid you not, this lady, there's a seat next to me because, I, you know, I'm a personal space guy, and I'm naturally introverted, and, and so she leans across the seat. If I had turned to look at her, I would have kissed her, right? So she's one of those people that has no concept for personal space, right? And I'm, and I'm trying to pretend that she's not there, right, which is really awkward because I don't know what to do, right? And, and, so, and, and so I'm sitting there, and then all of a sudden she leans back over to, I don't remember her husband's name, let's call him Bob. Bob, he's got HBO on his pad, right? She just can't believe it, right? It's like she didn't even know this technology existed. And so she's like, how? <laughs> she, this is what she said. I've been here for three hours. I wish I had HBO on something, right? And I'm thinking to myself, well, you cannot have my iPad, right? I love you, but I don't even know you, so you can't have it. So, 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 so I'm explaining to her how it works and how you can do it, and, 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 and then the person comes up to me and says, you're next in line, Mr. Michaud, and she leans back over. That's what they said to us three hours ago, right? She's, she's just hilarious. So why am I telling you that story? I'm telling you that story because we go through life not even realizing things are possible with God. We go through life, and we go, we, we don't even have a concept for the possibility of change. For some of you here with your, with your words, you're, you're living life as, this, as this, this idea of I could be gentler instead of being coarse. You're like, I didn't, even know, I didn't even know you could do that. Maybe some of you here, you're only ever gentle to the point that you're too passive and sometimes you've missed opportunities to be coarse. And you look at your own personality and you say, I didn't, Fred, I didn't even know that was possible. It might be that you look at some of these texts and say, I didn't even know Jesus did things like that. It's one of the reasons why, whether you make City Life Church your home or not, find a church that you can call home. Because all of us need to be in settings and environments where we get to open up God's Word and learn things that we didn't even know were possible because God wants us to change, to become less like we are and more like His Son. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I pray that for all of us here tonight, Maybe the thing that you want to speak to us doesn't even have anything to do with super fine and extra coarse. But we know that all of us here tonight, you have something that you want to say to us. It may be that we would have an ear to listen and a heart to follow. In Christ's name, let's worship together.